Well, good morning, Cornerstone. If you uh, have a Bible with you, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Good to see you all. I hope you're liking the chairs. Are they comfortable? I hope so. Thank you to all who donated uh, for us to purchase the chairs. I trust the Lord was honored by your commitment to seeing Christ proclaimed in this church and people saved and his people grow in the knowledge of God. It's truly among my greatest privileges to serve as one of your pastors and to see God formed in you. We're taking a break from the Gospel of John, and uh, we're going to uh, do a mini-series that we're calling uh, The Anatomy of a Church. I forgot to load up the slides, so you can just turn that off if you want. Um, A couple of years ago, we did a series entitled uh, The Household of God, where we we looked at what is a church. And um, thank, thankful to the, fa- to the tech team who is so faithful every week. Uh, you can go back on the website and you can rewatch that series if you like. This series, however, is about what the church does. Uh, not what the church is so much, but what the church does and how it does what it does. It's a topical series which means that uh, rather than camping out in one section of the Bible like we normally do, we're sort of going to be bouncing around looking at a various number of passages and seeing how the Lord has tied them all together. For some of you, the material that we cover in this series is going to be old news. You know exactly what the Bible teaches on this subject. But for others, this may be entirely new. Pastor Brent and I were talking this week, this may be a, an entire paradigm shift for you about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a part of a church. So for that reason, I'll give you a couple of disclaimers before we read Matthew 16. First is this, if you're not a Christian and you're visiting here with us today, I would just like to say welcome. I hope I'm not the first one to welcome you. But this is, uh, so much of what we talk about today is really not going to apply to you. And uh, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't listen in. I think you should listen in. I think if you do listen in, you'll learn a lot about Jesus Christ and about uh, His people that He's called the church. This is sort of like a family meeting. So you're invited to listen in. The other disclaimer is this, that God's Word is the highest authority. God's Word is the highest and final authority. If what I say this morning is not found in the words of Scripture, or if it cannot be derived from the words of Scripture, then you have no reason to believe it, accept it, walk it out in your life. But if what I say this morning is found in God's Word, if it can be derived from God's Word, then it is binding on me as it is binding on you. And so I would encourage you, to do what the inimitable LeVar Burton tells you to do, which is don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself in God's word. I added that last part, but don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. All right, so if you point your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you're welcome to borrow one of ours. I used to say, uh, grab one of the pew Bibles in front of you. I can't say that anymore because we got rid of the pews. I'm still in therapy about that, still trying to get over that. Um, Matthew chapter 16, you'll find in one of the pew Bibles, one of the chair Bibles. It just doesn't sound like godly to say chair Bible. (laughs) One of the black Bibles on page 822. The chapter numbers are the big numbers, and the verse numbers are the little numbers. We're going to begin reading at chapter 16, verse 13. And since I forgot to load up the slides, just follow along. I want you to see this in the Bible so that you're not, uh, you're not believing that I'm just making this up, okay? This is all here in God's Word. We're going to look at four passages today. I'm going to read the first one, and then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. should be Uh, all in all, probably 45 minutes or so. I'll try not to go uh, any longer than 45 minutes, but then again, that's why we bought you comfortable chairs. So here's the big idea uh, before we read, that Jesus Christ has given His church authority to affirm the true gospel and to affirm those that belong to it. 
I'm going to say that again. You can read it on the backside of your worship guide if you like. Jesus Christ has given authority to His church to affirm the true gospel and to affirm those who belong to it. Let's take a look. Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Marjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, your name is great. And greatly to be praised. Lord, would you attune our ears to your word? Would you remove from us all sources of distraction? Would you soften our hearts in order that we would receive your word? Would you forgive us? For where we feel the push against your word. Enable us to understand it. Enable me, your servant, to speak it. Explain it. And Lord, if there's any word that I have written in my notes, which is not accord to your word, I pray that I would not speak it. Or that I would go dumb before I speak it. And if there's something in that I have forgotten, I have not seen. I pray that you would bring it to my mind. I pray that your people would be equipped, encouraged, strengthened to be God's people for God's gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever lost your keys? Of course you have. Everyone's lost their keys. Isn't it really annoying? to lose your keys. Do you know I found something more annoying than losing my keys? It's when I'm looking for my keys and someone says, well, where did you put them? Where did I put them? If I knew the answer to that question, I wouldn't be looking for them. I would be getting them. Many Christians have lost their keys. Not your car keys, not your house keys, not your office keys. The keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of us didn't even know we had kingdom keys. They might be like that junk drawer that you have at your house that has like 50 keys in there. You have no idea what, they, what they're ever for. You don't even know how you got so many keys. But if you're a Christian, And a member in good standing with your local church, my friend, you have keys to the kingdom of heaven. Listen to this passage again as we read, starting at verse 15 down to 19, and listen for keys. Who do you say that I am? Jesus said. Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth 
shall be loosed in heaven. The first part of this passage is sometimes called the great confession. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's among the clearest declaration of the identity of Jesus Christ that you'll find in Scripture. Jesus blesses his disciple Peter, saying to him that you didn't figure this out on your own. God revealed this to you. And on that, on that God-given revelation about me, on that I will build my church. So from this we know the foundation of the true church of God is the true identity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which he gave to the apostles. He says, on this rock I will build my church. The church, therefore, is a community of people to whom God revealed himself such that they know and believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And then the next part is where we find the keys. Jesus goes on, tells Peter, I will give you, and that's singular, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys of the kingdom. What does that mean? Keys of the kingdom of heaven. Well, whatever it means, it has something to do with binding and loosing. For next, he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So we have keys and binding and loosing. It's all very confusing. So let's slow down. Let's take an inventory of what Jesus has just said. It's sort of like uh, buying furniture from Ikea. It's probably best to just rip the whole box open and lay out all the pieces and have a look at what's there. Get a sense of what we have and get a sense of what we're working with. First, we have the true identity of Jesus Christ. So we take that and we put that over there. Second, we see Jesus promising to build his church on this God-given confession. So we put that over there. Then we have this bit about the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Not sure what that means. We'll just put it here. So whatever these keys are, somehow they're meant to bind and loose things on earth, which are also bound and loosed in heaven. Still lost about what that means, so I'm going to file that over here. So all the parts of this brand new Ikea sofa that you just bought are laid out. You've got the picture on the box, and now it's time to put it all together. And if you're like me, the first course of action is to take out the assembly instructions and give a nice manly nod to your own masculinity, and then throw those instructions in the trash. Women love when you do that. It's because when you do, it always ends up that they're extra parts, which everyone knows are unnecessary, and they were just accidentally thrown into the box in the begin with. And while we may be tempted to do the same thing with Jesus' words here in Matthew 16, it's slightly more important than putting together a trendy bookshelf with a Swedish name. By the way, why, do, why does Ikea name all of their products? It's like, this be called Ogden. No, that's a chair. Why does it have to have like a weird Swedish name? They're smart people, those Swedes. They've turned furniture shopping into an amusement park for adults. It's crazy how excited we get about going to Ikea. Anyway, this passage has assembly instructions. And you'll find them in chapter 18. So if you're using one of the chair Bibles, it'll be on the next page, 823. Matthew chapter 18, starting with the little verse 15. These are the assembly instructions of the keys, binding, and loosing. Verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you 
agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So the best way to interpret Scripture is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Did you catch the word-for-word repetition in verse 18? Also, did you catch that the word church is used again by Jesus? I'll have you know that in all four Gospels, the word church, which is ekklesia in Greek, which is that funny-looking word behind me, that word church, ekklesia, appears three times in the four Gospels, all by Matthew, all in these two passages. So everything Jesus taught about the church in ecclesia, using that language, is here. So clearly these two passages, Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, are related. They're obviously connected. Well, something that's a little less obvious is that in verses 15 to 17, everything is in the singular If your brother or sister sins against you, singular. But then when we get to verse 18 down to 20, everything turns plural. Whatever you, plural, bind on earth. You can't see that in your English Bible because in English, the word you can be used in the plural or it can be used in the singular. Unless you're in the South. They got real smart down there, and they decided to start using the phrase, y'all, you all, to mean you, plural. Appalachian folk were even more advanced than them, and they started using the phrase, yuns, which I take to mean the, the combination of the word you and ones, which is really confusing, but what do I know? I'm from Ohio. Here's what Jesus is teaching. Sometimes this, is, this passage is called church discipline. This happens when a brother or sister sins against you. And you go to that brother or sister and you tell them their fault. Notice Jesus says, just between the two of you. Which means, not on Facebook, not on Instagram, not on the phone, not over text message, just between the two of you. And then you give them time to see their sin and to turn from the sin and repent. But if they refuse to listen, Jesus says, then you take two or three along with you and you encourage your brother or sister to do the same. See your sin. Turn from your sin. Repent. Give them more time. And even after that time, if they still refuse to see their sin and repent, Jesus says, Tell it to the church. Then you give them more time. And still, after more time, if they won't see their sin, if they're unrepentant in their sin, Jesus says if they refuse to listen even to the church, He says treat them as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, Jesus is speaking this, of course, to a Jewish audience they would have understood him to mean someone who is outside the family of God. A Gentile tax collector would have been someone who's not in the family of faith. Someone who we would eagerly, someone we would lovingly call to repent and believe the gospel. In post-resurrection parlance, that would be a non-Christian. Then comes this bit about the binding and loosing. So from this, if we put it all together, we can see that binding and loosing has to do with the collective determination of the who of the church, by the church. The collective determination of the who of the church by the church. Matthew 16 teaches us what the church is. People to whom God has revealed His Son. They've come to believe in Him and they're being built on Him. And then here in Matthew 18, we learn about Jesus teaching us the who of the church. 
Those who are trusting in Christ, who are following Him, who see their own sin and turn away from their sin and trust in Christ. That recognition of sin, that turning away from sin, that's fundamentally what it means to be a Christian. I'm sure you all understand, don't you, that Christians are not sinless. Not at all. I like how Pastor Mark Dever puts it. Church is only for sinners, but just a very specific kind of sinner, the unrepentant kind. When a sinner becomes unrepentant in his or her sin, they begin to show signs that perhaps they may not be a Christian. They may have made the great confession But their life is no longer walking in step with that confession. And after long, private, loving, careful interaction with that person, through clear encouragement and calls to repent, if still there is no repentance, that person's church then loses their ability to affirm, you are a brother, you are a sister in Christ. Binding and loosing is the church's way to declare as best they can, given the facts, who is part of Jesus' church and who is not. Jesus goes on in verse 19 to 20, and He promises that while they're doing this great work of binding and loosing, of, of determining the who of the, of the church, He promises that He'll be among them in that matter. He says, if two or three of you agree on earth about anything they ask, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that that verse, those two verses have been misused many, many times to get people to show up at prayer meetings or something. When church members gather, even if there's only two or three of them, when they agree together saying, this sister has made the good confession and best we can tell she is repentant, she is our sister in the Lord, we welcome her into membership of this church. Jesus says, I'm among you in that decision. I will also welcome her into membership into your church. My God's grace, the members of this church get to do that tonight. So I think it's probably time to time out for a second. You're very quiet do a little bit of a huddle. Steve mentioned this earlier. There's a lot about this we just don't like. Late modern people like us, we don't like the kind of language about in and out. We don't like drawing lines about insider and outsider. I feel that. I'm there with you. But I just want you to consider, if we give up the ability to say what something isn't, then haven't we also given up the ability to say what something is? We do that as a church so that we know who needs to be encouraged and who needs to be evangelized. Christians understand that it means something to be a Christian. To confess Jesus is Lord, to believe that Jesus is Lord, that's one thing, and that's a wonderful thing. The Bible teaches not just what it sounds like to be a Christian, the Bible also teaches what it looks like to be a Christian. Jesus taught that believing in Him also meant following Him. If you remember from John chapter 14, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Church discipline gets a bad rap. I understand that when we hear that phrase, we almost immediately think of negative things, corrective discipline. You may even have these images conjured in your mind of Hester Prynne wearing her scarlet A in colonial New England with all kinds of self-righteous people pointing her, pointing fingers at her, condemning her. 
That's a wrong view of church discipline. I want you to know you've all been through church discipline. The, the vast majority of church discipline is positive. It's formative discipline. If you've sat underneath the preaching and teaching of God's Word and you've seen it and applied it to your life, you guess what that's called? Church discipline, formative church discipline. If you've ever sat down with a brother or sister in the Lord and they've encouraged you in something, that's formative church discipline. If you've ever sat down with a brother and sister in the Lord and they said, that's probably not wise, you should probably not do that, you should probably go this direction. This seems more biblical. You just went through church discipline. Formative church discipline. And the vast majority of church discipline, when it's completed, both the people, all the people involved come away with rejoicing in their heart, feeling full of the Lord and His Spirit. It's it's the stake driven into the ground that helps the tree grow straight. It's the little cage we put around tomato plants to help them grow up. It's the trellis that the vine grows up and bears fruit. All of that good, all of that formative. You have to see that it's for our good. I so appreciate German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So helpful on this point when he wrote middle of last century about church discipline. He says, listen listen to this. He says this. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. But in the confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. Sin is brought into the light. Since the confession of sin is made in the presence of a Christian brother, the last stronghold of self-justification is abandoned. The sinner surrenders. He gives his heart to God and he finds the forgiveness of his sin in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his brother. The expressed, acknowledged sin has lost all its power. He stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God and the cross of Christ. I'm so thankful for, those, for that brother's words to us. I want you to see that Matthew 18, 15 through 20 are for our good. If you have a Bible open, just take a look. The passage right before this one. What is it called in your Bible? It's a parable. What's it called? The parable of the lost sheep. Jesus tells the story of a man who had 99 sheep and he left them to go find the one sheep that was lost and to restore it to the fold with joy. Then I would direct your attention to the parable that comes right after this passage where Jesus teaches that Christians who have been forgiven so much by God are willing to forgive anyone, anything. You're still on the fence about the church's use of the keys of the kingdom for good. I'll take you to two more places in the Bible. In your Bible, please turn to Hebrews chapter 12. That's a little bit toward the back. If you're still in one of the chair Bibles, it'll be on page 1008. Hebrews chapter 12. There's going to be elements of what we're about to read that might be a little familiar if you were paying attention during the call to worship. When Ethan read that passage from the Psalms, some of that language is here. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at the, at the very beginning, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great cl- a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? From the Proverbs, he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He, what does your Bible say? Loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you've had to endure God as treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had an earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. If you are a person who underlines in your Bible, friend, I would re- recommend you underline this next phrase, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it the lord disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness You ever wonder how he does that? Does he take you out back? God show up in your house and take you out back and spank you on the backside when you do sin? I think he does it through others. He does it through our involvement in the lives of one another in our church. He does it through Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between the two of you. And if he repents, you have gained your brother. He does it through Galatians 6, 1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Bear one another's burdens. Could it be that our aversion to discipline is that we have all largely succumbed to an individualistic understanding of the faith. How often do we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus? Our relationship with Jesus is personal, but that doesn't mean it's private. Your entrance into the faith at baptism was public. What if your formation into Christ is also public? What if the reason that you are being taught to be like Christ is so that you can teach someone else how to be like Christ? Do you see that this teaching about what it means to be a Christian makes being a Christian so much bigger than attending Sunday morning services every week, as long as you're not busy, as long as something else doesn't come along? Can you see that God intends so much more for us than just acquiring a life of ease and comfort? Could it be that some of the dissatisfaction that we feel with our Christian experience is telling us something. I want you to know how eager I am as your pastor to, for you to know the joy of loving and supporting a brother and sister in Christ while they're going through a hard time. How eager I am for you to know the joy of sitting down with someone who's going through something that you also went through. So that you get to share with them the grace that God showed to you, to them. I want you to know the joy of staking yourself to a brother in the Lord who's struggling. To attach yourself to a sister in the Lord who's wavering in her faith. 
Discipleship, my friend, is a community project. You've probably heard the phrase that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a church community to raise a Christian. I think we all understand that we're not finished projects, don't we? No one here that I'm aware of has a graduate degree hanging in their office of grace. Don't need any more. I've got it all. I think we all understand and would probably even acknowledge that we have blind spots, don't we? And we need others to come alongside us and to say, "Uh uh-uh, you're not seeing it, but that's what it is. We need other people to keep us from being isolated. Can I get real practical with you? There are people who have missed this church three or four weeks in a row. And I'm probably the only person who's reached out to them. That's partly my job. But it's not only my job. Some pastors like to take their people and shuffle them around. So, you know, we get into patterns. Brent and Jane, oh, we sit right there. I'm okay with that. Because that means the other people who come always sit where they come. And when they're not there, you notice. It's good for us to notice when someone's missing. It's not good to ignore it. I want to turn to one more place. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You're going to have to forgive me. I think I'm going to go over time. In the Pew Bible, that's page 954. I'm just going to keep calling it Pew Bibles. We're going to see this whole church discipline thing at work. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at a town called Corinth. And he told them to address a matter in the church. Address a matter of sin in the church. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read the first 13. Well, we'll read the whole chapter. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, dear church, of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Gross. And you are arrogant, Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from you. For although absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who had done such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan. And, to de- and for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to need to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother who is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges from the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So here we have a situation where a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And he's acting like it's okay. And the church is acting like it's okay. And Paul tells the Corinthian church, you need to help that brother. You need to do something about that. And I want you to notice the intention that Paul brings in giving them this instruction. He tells the assembled church to remove the unrepentant man from among them. He tells them to make a judgment on the matter. 
If it is determined that they, he is truly living in sin, he is truly unrepentant, they are to remove him. And Paul gives them two reasons for doing this. The first reason we find in verse 5, that his spirit may be saved. This man was deceived into some kind of thinking that he was a Christian, and yet he was living in a way that would show that he's not a Christian. And so Paul tells the church, y'all need to act. You need to do something. Help this man see. He cannot persist in unrepentant sin. Because that calls into question his confession. This is an act of kindness by his church. They're doing it because they love him. They want him to see the, the seriousness of his sin. And they're hoping and praying that God would Help him to repent. Now, I want you to know if there's good news, it sure seems that this brother did repent. When you get to the next letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians, here's what Paul tells them. Turn and forgive and comfort him. Reaffirm your love to him. Welcome him back. How hard it must have been for those believers to tell that brother, You've got to go. We can't let you take communion among us. We can't let you come here and just act like this is okay. How hard that must have been for them. But how wonderful, how joyful the reunion of when they welcomed him back and they hugged him probably with tears. Well, there's another purpose in Paul calling the church to do this active discipline. It was to maintain the purity of the church. You can see this in verse 6 to 8. Paul uses a bit of a confusing metaphor about leaven. It just means to show that one person's holiness affects the whole church. One little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. One little bit of sin, the whole thing's affected. As you read this paragraph, are you thinking about the impact your own holiness has among those around you? So this is our second time out. This is our second huddle. Bit of a check-in. Everyone doing okay? We're almost done. I hope the points are landing. Christian, you are not meant to go through this life alone. You are not meant to be a Christian on your own. I know it's tempting to think so, but God has made you a relational being who is dependent on others. So this message is for Christians, but it's also for those who are not Christians. Our God was so wonderfully loving and gracious that He sent Jesus to live in perfect obedience to God's Word, to absorb the wrath of God for sin and to die on the cross to make each one of us, as we trust in Him, have His own righteousness before God. We just sang a song about it. But that process of becoming like Christ takes a lifetime, and I'm hoping you're beginning to see it takes an entire community. God cared for you enough not only to save you, but to adopt you into His own family, the church so that those who are also members of your church are your brother and sister in the Lord. And you lock arms with them, and you walk the Christian walk with them arm in arm, and they keep you being isolated by your sin, and you keep them from being isolated in their sin. They keep you from deceiving yourself and heading headlong into hell. And you put up the little bridge out ahead sign in front of them and say, stop. Those are the king's keys of the kingdom of heaven. Drawing lines about what is a Christian and what is a non-Christian. And it's one of the most loving and important things that a church does. It seeks to avoid giving people a false sense of safety. 
being comfortable in their unrepentant sins. It seeks to give people who, who are struggling encouragement. And it gives every Christian a greater and more fulfilling purpose. I want to conclude with just a couple of thoughts in the next two or three minutes. When God saved us, He gave us His church, adopts us into His family, and He gives His church, the gathered church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind and loose. They represent the trust the Lord Jesus has given to every Christian to take ownership over the gospel witness in their town. We gather, we read the Bible, we affirm the gospel as it's preached. More on that next week. We'll gather and affirm who belongs to Christ. So what if we just don't? What if we just take Matthew's keys and we just put them in the junk drawer, forget they're even there? Because all of this sounds very nosy. Sounds intrusive. Won't it create a culture of like self-righteous finger pointing? We could do that. We could just put them in the drawer and we just close the drawer and just forget about them. It would be easier. It would be so much cleaner. But it would also cause our church to fill up with people who have made peace with living in sin. Who have led themselves to believe that God is okay with their sin. It would leave people with no sign that says bridge out ahead. It would cause church to be full of non-Christians. And what would happen then? The church would look just like the world. So that when outsiders, those who are in the world, look into the church, we would look the same. We, they wouldn't have any questions to ask us. Members of this church have covenanted together to do the very things that we've seen here in these passages. And Lord willing, tonight we welcome a brother into membership. We get to hear his confession. We get to affirm that he is in Christ. And when we do, we will collectively commit to stake ourselves to him. To commit to help him walk with Christ anytime he needs it. And he will commit to us to do the same with us. So what does this look like in our church? It sort of looks like what's going to happen on Saturday night at Alyssa Minter's house. Sisters gathering together to encourage one another in the Lord. It looks like what's happening at my Living Stones group on Wednesdays. It looks like sisters meeting together and having coffee and talking about the Lord together. It looks like a father taking his teenage son for a drive and talking about the Lord and sex. It looks like wives confessing their sin to their husband. It looks like roommates studying the Bible together. It looks like Brooklyn Flora picking up teenagers who are younger than her and spending a Friday night hanging out with them. It looks like Christians caring enough about the glory of God in one another that they're willing to spend their self for the sake of one another. You know what it looks like? It looks like a church who's found her keys. Please stand. I know there was a lot, so let me encourage you in this. We read four passages that are on the backside of your, your worship guide. You're welcome to take that worship guide home. And this afternoon, read through those passages again. If you have questions about anything that we covered this morning, 
I'd welcome you to come back tonight. Tonight we're having a members gathering. And we'll take some time at the beginning of the members gathering and answer any questions you may have. If you don't have any questions, that's okay. Read the passages, work through it, and see whether or not this is the Word of God and this is what He is asking of you. So what we do at the end of our service is we take a point uh, or two from the passage and we ask the Lord, we confess our sins before Him, and we ask the Lord to forgive us. We call this the prayer of confession. So if you would take a moment and pray with me. Father in heaven, your kindness to us today has been overwhelming. We have seen today in your word how much you have done how much you are still doing to save us and to keep us. We've seen how you've not left us to ourselves, that you have knit us together with one another. What a merciful God you are to care this much about sinners like us, to give us a church family, to adopt us into your own family. And so, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for all the ways that we have believed that we are on our own and that we don't need your people. Help us to see what a gift God's church is to us. Enable us to see all the ways that we are and should be relying on one another. And, Father, forgive us from hiding our sin from one another. Forgive us for thinking that repentance is simply between you and us. Forgive us for having neglected to confess our sins to one another. Forgive us for trusting so much of our, on ourselves that we have neglected this kind grace that you have given us. And would you grant to us the boldness and bravery to begin caring about one another so that we can begin caring for one another. Would you help us to reprioritize our schedules, reprioritize our commitments to make room for real ministry, meeting with and praying for brothers and sisters in this church? Would you show us how we can rebudget our time and our money to have your people into our home? to eat together, to study the Bible together, to encourage faithfulness in one another, and to rejoice in the Lord's goodness. Lord, strengthen the joints of this little church. Those members who already are connected, make them stronger. And those parts which are loose, would you bring them together? Would you help us to use the keys in a way that build your church? that preserve your gospel and that bring honor to your Son. May Jesus get all that He has paid for with His blood from this little church.